You are listening to From Shadow to Substance, studies from the book of Hebrews, taught by pastors Rick Bino and John Boulay at Hocassin Baptist Church in the spring of 2008. Today's sermon is entitled, Therefore, Let Us Hold Firmly to the Faith. And now, Pastor Rick. I don't know if you uh, noticed that I was starting to laugh back there at the drum set. That's because you, only, you can't see the whole picture when you're back there. And uh, during that one song where Gina was playing the tambourine, I guess, I don't know what happened. She got her skirt caught on her heel or something. So she was kind of, I don't know what it was, but when I saw it, I thought she was hitting the tambourine on her foot. <laughs> and I was thinking, whoa, all right, all right. <laughs> then I realized I probably wasn't seeing things clearly, but then I got all tickled about it and got to laughing. Back in 1863, a young woman named Charity Lees Bancroft wrote the words of the, one of the hymns that we sang this morning, Before the Throne of God Above. And the inspiration for that hymn clearly comes from the portion of Scripture that we'll be looking at in the book of Hebrews today. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look. And see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Let's consider together the words of Hebrews chapter 4. We'll start in verse 12. I'm going to read through chapter 5, verse 10. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to follow along with me. Start about halfway through Hebrews chapter 4, a little towards the tail end, chapter 12, or verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 4, through to verse 10 of chapter 5. 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. 
Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honor upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to become, to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Before the throne of God above. Now, it's sometimes hard for us to, to capture and to absorb the imagery of thrones because probably none of you have ever seen a throne except in a picture or in some museum of some sort. Most of you have probably never stood before a king on a throne. So we are somewhat unfamiliar with the idea of approaching the throne of a king. But the original readers would have been more familiar with it, though they probably never would have approached a throne either. They might have heard stories, though, of those who were allowed to approach the throne of a king. And most of the time, there were all kinds of, all kinds of protocol and rules for approaching a throne. Often, you couldn't approach the throne unless you were called by the king. And even then, you might be required to approach the throne and lay prostrate and put your forehead on the floor in front of the king as a sign of respect or worship, depending on the king. You may have had to kiss rings or feet or fingers or hands in order to show your submission to the king. And so it's in this context that we should try to understand the impact of the writer's words when he says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. The idea of approaching a human kingly throne with confidence was almost unheard of, let alone approaching the throne of God with confidence. Surely their first impression would have been wonder at the fact that they've been given the ability and that we've been given the ability to stand before the throne of God. As we've talked about, the, the, the receivers of the book of Hebrews had a Jewish background. So they were familiar with how you ought to approach God. And the way that you approached God was through a mediator, a high priest, the whole priestly system, the sacrificial system. And the priest offered sacrifices for you. But as the text says, 
in verse 3 of chapter 5, the priest himself was sinful. And so the priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sin, which he did once a year when he went into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. In order to do that, there was a large amount of tradition and rules and regulations and pomp and circumstance and protocol that God had set up in order to make sure that people approached him properly. Because if they didn't, they would die. And so God gave them the rules for approaching the throne, I mean, the throne of God, the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. So these people were well aware of what it meant to approach the throne of God, and they knew that it was not something they could just go off and do on their own. Or at least, they didn't used to be able to do it on their own. But now the writer says that there is a new great high priest. And because of this great high priest, because of Jesus, we could stand before the throne of God. Jesus Christ is our advocate before the King. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. We call the song Before the Throne of God above. But the title given to it by its author was the advocate. Let's pray together. Lord, even this morning we approach your throne because of Jesus Christ. And we approach your throne in submission to the work of Jesus Christ in our lives and in this church. And so we approach with confidence and gratefulness that you accept and hear our worship, that you hear our prayers, that you are acting even now as our advocate. And as we open your word, may you reveal to us through your spirit truths to change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the next three or so chapters of the book of Hebrews is going to play out for us what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. It's going to kind of look at this idea of Jesus being our great high priest from several different angles. So what you're going to have to do today is accept the fact that we're not going to cover all there is to cover about Jesus being our great high priest, because that is what the book of Hebrews is going to do for the next section. And that section of Hebrews, some would call it the main section of Hebrews, is the explanation of what it means that Jesus is our great high priest. So let me first note one thing that we're not going to talk about, and that is Melchizedek. Melchizedek's name shows up twice in this passage. Jesus is of the order of Melchizedek. But I'm not not just booting it away. We're going to cover it. But if you let your eyes go over to chapter 7, you see that the writer just sort of brings it up here, but it's in chapter 7 that he's going to talk the whole chapter about what it means that Jesus is from the order of Melchizedek. So you're just going to have to wait two weeks, and then Pastor John will actually be here to preach about it. He drew the short straw, I guess. (laughs) But there's going to be other aspects of the high priest that we're not going to totally touch on today because the the author pulls it out for us, so I'm not going to try to pull it all out today. What I just want us to think about today is, why do we need a high priest? 
I mean, if we're going to talk for the next three or four weeks about Jesus being this great high priest, it might be helpful for us to understand why is it that we need a high priest at all. So that's going to sort of be the orienting question for the rest of our time together. So as I said, it was the high priest who was able to offer sacrifices. It was the priests who acted as the mediators between the people and God. But this high priest throughout the history of Israel had always been an imperfect one because they were men who were sinful. And therefore, he had to be offering sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. But then Christ comes as our perfect mediator because he is without sin. And the fact that Jesus is without sin is actually one of several, let's call qualifications, that are given in this passage for Jesus as high priest. We see in 4.14, here are some of the other qualifications, 4.14, that he came through the heavens. 4.15, we find out that he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He was tempted and tested just as we are. Yet, and don't miss the yet, yet was without sin. And so he has experienced the fears and the pressures and the difficulties that we have experienced. He has walked through it himself, yet has done so without sin. And therefore, Jesus does not have to offer a sacrifice for himself. But the sacrifice he offers on the cross can be for us. And then he represents us before God in chapter 5, verse 1. All high priests did this. They all represented us before God. But Jesus, being the great perfect high priest, does so eternally and perfectly. He deals gently in 5.2 with those who have gone astray. In 5.4 is called by God. And in 5.7 he offers up prayers, the sacrifices, the offerings of Jesus are prayers and petitions. If you remember the first section of Hebrews, the writer has been arguing for Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity. That Jesus is fully God and he is fully human. And he does so again here. Jesus comes through the heavens, but he is tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus is called God's son, but he's also called our great high priest, our mediator between God and us. He walked on earth offering up prayers, and now he stands as our advocate in heaven, as our mediator and our sympathizer and our advocate before God. We can approach the throne of God above because Jesus is there, acting as our advocate and as our mediator. And this is fabulous news, assuming that you think you need a mediator. Now, if you don't think you need a mediator, then the good news of Jesus is a little irrelevant to you. If you have the perception that you can just swing open the throne room of God and bring in a couple of cups of Starbucks coffee and have a chat with him, well, then you don't need the mediator. And it's easy for many to have this attitude of approaching God in this way. It's especially easy in a culture where you create your own God. If you create a God, maybe it's yourself, maybe it's the God you find in yourself, 
Maybe it's sort of an eclectic mix of all the things you like about every other religion, so you create your own. Well, then you certainly would probably create a God that you could pal around with, that you could enter into his throne room and have coffee with. But are we able to simply approach God without a mediator, without an advocate? Let's think back a second to get larger context of this introduction of Jesus as a great high priest. If you remember last week in our time together, we saw that the writer laid out for us a multi-layered and multifaceted view of rest, showing that spiritual rest and our soul rest is more than just a vacation day, but that rest for our souls is deeply ingrained in our spiritual heritage, in who we are as created humans. And so from creation to the Sabbath day, to the promised land of Israel, to the promised future of heavenly rest, this idea of rest is ingrained in us. But the writer shows us that the opposite of rest is not busyness necessarily, although that might be part of it, but that the opposite of rest is unbelief. That the thing that keeps us both from present rest and the thing that will keep us from eternal rest is unbelief in our lives. And so last week, if you remember, we spent some time just absorbing and appreciating the rest, the soul rest, even if we only tasted it for a few minutes, the soul rest offered to us by God. But a strange thing can happen, I've discovered, when you hear warnings in Scripture. When you hear a warning in Scripture that says, be careful that you're you're not unbelieving. Be careful that you believe. Be careful that you're not falling short of the gospel we often will either consciously or unconsciously deny that the warning applies to us. We start nudging the spouse. Are you listening? Now, this disposition of denial is no surprise to us, right? Our human disposition, our sinful human disposition is one of denial. Our knee-jerk reaction, if I were to point to you and accuse you of just about anything right now, is you would deny it. Imagine a child. He's looking at you, crumbs at his feet, chocolate chips smudges on the mouth, chocolate chips on the fingers. He's still chewing. And you say, did you take a cookie? The answer might very well be, no. (laughs) Right? Instant denial. Companies, corporations, they love denial. We won't admit to wrongdoing. We'll pay you off, but we will not admit to wrongdoing. Right? We have jokingly say when confronted, deny everything. Deny everything. So sometimes we deny the truth to get out of trouble, like this kid in the cookie, with the cookie. Sometimes we deny things to protect ourselves, don't we, from embarrassment or shame. For instance, if you were to ask me if back in the 80s, I could be found, at, found hanging out in the neighborhood park with a half-cut t-shirt with Miami Vice on it. I'm going to deny that. I'm going to deny it until you show me proof, which I think I've destroyed. I'm going to deny that I ever wore a half-cut t-shirt. I'm going to deny that I ever wore one of those mesh things. I'm going to deny it.
We deny things to avoid embarrassment. I told you that this idea of lacking rest goes way back in our human history, so does denial. Adam and Eve first sin, and they hide themselves, right? It's denial, right? An element of denial. And then God comes looking for them. Adam, Eve, hello, hello, hello. Finally finds them, realizes that they've been hiding, realizes God sees that they know they're naked, says that what happened. And Adam denies responsibility, points to Eve. Eve denies responsibility, points to the serpent. Don't know if the serpent had hands to point to anybody, so I guess it lands on him. <laughs> denial. We love denial. Whether we're shamed or whether we're getting in trouble, our knee-jerk reaction is denial, but it gets more complicated. Sometimes we find ourselves in denial because we simply do not know our own hearts. Jeremiah says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's disturbing information. It's disturbing information when God says, you will not enter my rest if you don't have, if you have any unbelief in you. You will not enter my rest. And then the Bible says, but you don't know your own heart. And then we go, well, that's a problem. Well, the problem just increases in verses 12 and 13. Look at those verses again. For the, this is chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active... Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I've unfortunately heard this passage, what I would consider poorly preached, Because I've heard it tamed down into something like, read the Bible because it applies to your life. I don't quite think that's what the writer of Hebrews is going for. I mean, it's true, read the Bible, it applies to your life. But to put it bluntly, this passage isn't very nice and neat. Frankly, it's it's disturbing. Because it's telling us that the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the truth of God is going to come into your life with a sword, two-edged, just in case you, you know, want to know how it's going to happen. He can swing both ways. He's going to come through, and he's going to do some damage in digging the sin out of your life. And I feel like the, the, the intensity of that passage is so often missed. One commentator likened the passage to a doctor doing surgery. I think, with a sword? (laughs) With a two-edged sword? This is not surgery. Another commentary says this. Here I quote, The purpose of the two-edged sword is always to cleanse and to heal. And I'm thinking, when was the last time your kid came in with a splinter and you went to cleanse and heal it? by going to your medicine cabinet and grabbing your two-edged sword. Here, honey. The image here, I think, is this. The Word of God comes into your life swinging and hacking and cutting and making itself well-known. There is nothing in your heart or in your life that will not be revealed by the powerful insight of the Word of God. If it's not being revealed now, it will be revealed in the end. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. Nothing can be pushed under the rug. Nothing can be hidden in the closet. 
Listen to the last line. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Everything. Friends, this is not a comforting passage for humanity that likes denial. Because the very things that we are trying to deny or hide or ignore are the very things that will be revealed when the Word of God enters our lives. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. The word there, uncovered, could be, could be expressed as exposed. Everything will be exposed. And this idea of exposure is one of the deepest fears that we have as humans, isn't it? To be exposed. Right, of course, we think of it like in Adam and Eve that our nakedness would someday be exposed, that we'd be seen naked. So that's deeply ingrained in us, exposure. But it happens at all other kind of levels, too. I was, I was driving to my home the other day, and the, a neighbor was moving out, and all their stuff was on the front yard. And I had that moment of like, man, I, I almost didn't want to like look away. Because it was all like their stuff. It was like their whole life was in their front yard, kind of exposed. When I teach speech classes at the university, I start out by talking about a survey done in the 1990s. And in this survey, the number two greatest fear given by people, the number two greatest fear is death. The number one greatest fear, public speaking, which is a great way to start up a public speaking class, I might add. And so I open with that, and then we start talking about, well, why is public speaking such a fear for so many people? And part of the answer, almost across the board, is exposure. I'm up there, all alone, everyone's looking at me, I'm by myself, and the exposure of it, is, it uh, touches on a very deep fear that we have in our lives of being exposed. We fear our secrets being exposed, our lives being exposed, we fear our laundry room being exposed to guests, don't we? Right? Somebody walks in the wrong room, you're like, no, 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 no! Like you have a nuclear reactor back there. Right? No, it's just your laundry. We don't want anybody to see the laundry. You click the door, the bathroom's the next one down. Right? We don't want to be exposed. And so it's all the more disturbing when we read this passage in 12 and 13 and find out that everything in your heart will be exposed. That God's word is going to see all, to reveal all. If there's any bitterness you're in denial about, it will be found. If there's anger in your heart, it will be revealed. If there's sinfulness being stored away, it will be brought forth. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. All will be known. So what should our reaction be at this point? Not something weak, like, oh, the Bible teaches a lot about myself. Our reaction should be, we are doomed. If at one point, God is going to look at all of our intentions, at all of our hearts, at every aspect of it, and the, the criteria is that all of that must be pure and must be, have no unbelief in it in order to enter my rest, and I'm going to look at everything, we have to respond with, woe is me. I'm finished. I'm doomed. 
I'll never enter God's rest if he's going to look at every little closet and every little part of my soul. I will never enter the rest. We find ourselves broken and unable to enter God's rest. And I think that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews wants you to feel so that he can say, but wait, you have a great high priest. You have an advocate. You have a mediator. You have someone who allows you to go before the throne of God. It's a two-part therefore. Look in verse 14. Therefore, since we have this great high priest, let us hold firmly to the faith. The second part is verse 16. Therefore, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. God's spirit in us, God's word in us, penetrating our lives, puts us in a very dangerous situation. We realize that we do not measure up, but it's in this context that we're hopefully, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that we need a great high priest and that we have a great high priest. We have this mediator. So hold on to the faith that you possess and approach the throne with confidence in your prayers and in your meditation and your scripture reading because there is one there who is perfect and sinless and instead of receiving wrath and punishment for the darkness of your soul, you will reveal you will receive mercy and grace. Look how the throne is described. The throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so my encouragement for us today is simply this. Because Jesus is your great high priest, you can let the word and spirit of God do the hard work of your soul. Now, the word may come to you directly through the Spirit or through community like this or through the preaching or or it may be spoken to you while you read the word. Most often, it's through Scripture itself. But we need to let the Scripture do its work. Denial will not gain you anything. For you to read a passage about unforgiveness and immediately go, oh, that's not me, will not gain you anything. It's very different to say, Unforgiveness, Lord, let me take your two-edged sword and search my heart and reveal in me any unforgiveness that I might need to deal with. And we might be ashamed to do that because it's going to expose us, but we have to remember that there's the other part, and that is you have a great high priest who's going to mediate for you. And so we can be free to be exposed by the powerful word of God. And so denial does us no good. Soren Kierkegaard, I guess this is kind of humorous, but it's powerful too. He says, the matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we well know that the very minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything else except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, 
my whole life will be ruined. How will I ever get along in the world? Dreadful it is, to quote Hebrews later, Kierkegaard says, dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament. Or at least it should be. And so we have the great comfort that we can allow the two-edged sword of the word to work in our lives, to expose the dark areas, because we know that when those dark areas are exposed, we are not disqualified from approaching the throne, but rather we understand the need for our mediator, and suddenly we become qualified, because we no longer swing open the throne and expect to be accepted. We crawl through the the doors, and we say, I need Jesus, the great high priest. And once Jesus, the great high priest, has worked in our lives, God says, you can approach my throne with confidence because it is a throne of grace and a throne of mercy because you have accepted the work of my son, the great high priest. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness, The great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God.